Buy low, sell high. Very easy to say, but not always so easy to do. For example, high interest rates are hurting the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices in a lot of markets are falling, even for many of the best assets. So it's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com pockets, fundrise.com pockets. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. You're trying to close on your next rental, so why is your insurance company dragging its feet? With long lead times and never-ending paper forms, it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy. Modern investors deserve better. They deserve Steadily.com. At Steadily.com, you'll get fast, affordable landlord insurance available online 24-7 in just a few clicks. You can even get next-day coverage, which takes just minutes, by the way, to obtain. And you can do it all from your phone. Steadily was founded by landlords who created insurance products tailored to the unique needs of this industry. It's their sole focus, and that's why landlords nationwide consistently rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars. So whether you've got a single-family, short-term, or multifamily portfolio, Steadily.com can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, everyone. Welcome to On The Market. I'm your host, Dave Meyer, and I am joined today by James Daynard. James, what's going on, man? Just grinding out deals, Pacific Northwest, trying to trying to get more inventory in the door. How's that going? You you pretty active right now? Yeah, we are staying fairly active right now. You know what we, we we've been doing is kind of fixing all of our systems, pivoting all our systems, and um, we're wrapping up all the inventory we bought over the last year. And then we've been aggressively actually we gotten contracted over on over sixteen million dollars in deals the last four weeks. Uh, I just closed on two fix and flips, and they're all sizes. Fix and flip, small guys, one big one, you know, I paid 400 for, one 1.5 for. I just got a, a duplex for one one, and then we locked in a pretty big deal uh, for a little, little above 10 mil. So moving things along. That's awesome, man. Well, well, keep it up. That's great to hear. Today for the show, we have Ben Miller, who is the CEO of Fundrise. And full disclosure, Fundrise is a financial sponsor of this show. But Ben is an incredible wealth of knowledge. It was so fun having him on. He He's kind of like, I feel like you guys have a lot in common. You're both deal junkies and just love talking shop about like individual real estate deals and strategies. What did you uh, What did you take away from the interview that you think the audience should listen for? Hey, he definitely is a deal guy, which is always good to invest in a deal guy. Because when I said I stayed at the office till midnight, his eyes perked up. He's like, "Yes, I get you." He's gonna make you a job offer. After this interview. <laughs> Hopefully not. I don't know if I can take on any more, but uh, it it 
you know, it was just nice talking because we, you know, as small investors, we go toe to toe with some of these big guys and just to see where their strategy is and, you know, and how they've kind of pivoted out and, and are doing things. I, I I was really excited to hear about their efficiencies and how they kind of basically they, they make the return by being efficient. And that's the kind of product they're looking for. They're not just looking for the best deal and what fits inside the box. And, and that's so key in today's market right now. As the market flattens out, you have to be really good at what you're going to do to hit your return. And, and, you know, the, it, that's the same with these big guys. The small guys are no bigger than the big guys. They're doing the exact same thing. How can they be efficient? How can they deploy the money and deploy it in the right area? Yeah, absolutely. And, and Ben, and Ben, in addition to talking about these efficiencies, gives some really good advice about what markets he's investing in, um, a whole new asset class in buy to rent. We talked, we had a really good conversation about that, that I was super interested in and just shares his thoughts on where the market's going over the next couple of years. So definitely stick around for this interview with Ben and we're going to invite him on in just a minute, but first we're going to take a short break. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my 9-to-5 job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know a thing about how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a hospitality-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, Vacasa earns homeowners an average of 20% more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa is always thinking of ways to simplify the vacation homeowning experience by putting your home to work for you. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home, work with the reliable property manager, and finally have peace of mind, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. That's vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. Ben Miller, CEO of Fundrise, welcome to On The Market. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. We're super excited to have you. Before we get into some of the market conditions and what's going on in, in your business, would love to just hear a little bit about your background and how you got started in real estate investing. 
All right. Well, so I've been in, in this business about 23 years. So I started out in real estate private equity and then moved to the real estate development sponsorship side. So worked for a large mixed-use development company in D.C. We were building about half a billion of real estate right when 2008 financial crisis hit. And so I have like like scars and like burn wounds from that experience. And after that, I came out of thinking, well, there's got to be a better way and conceived of the idea of raising capital through the internet for real estate. And we essentially invented that concept in 2012 and Fundrise was birthed with the idea of basically creating kind of a, a future of real estate where individuals can invest in real estate the same way institutions or or high net worth investors can like it before fundrise large real estate was only available to large investors so yeah you you have experience obviously on the the large institutional side of things and i'm curious what what sort of advantages do institutional investors like private equity or these developers that you're working with have that retail investors like myself don't have I think there's two. I mean, one is just the type of products you can buy. So, if you thought that like, you know, skyscrapers were a great investment, right? Only institutional investors can do that. So, there's certain types of asset classes like data centers that basically are only institutional investors. And the separate is just like the, the type of financing you can get, the type of operations, type of there's a lot of uh, economies of scale. So um, from an operations point of view, you know, operating, let's say we own 20,000 uh, apartment, apartment and uh, residential units, that's very different than owning like three. So Ben, w- when I was looking at your guys' fees and structure, it, because you guys are large and you're deploying out so much and buying, is that how you guys can control your fees so much throughout is but because you're just doing the bigger skyscraper deals, the, the, the larger deployed capital, is that how you guys are so competitive and what you charge? Uh, I think it's a combination of things. We definitely operate at scale and that's like something that we are now in the beginning, we, you know, we had to grow into that. And in the beginning, we basically was just subsidized by our investors, right? So we had lower fees and we were losing money in order to basically get to scale. So our fees are, 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 are super low, I mean, much lower than like other institutional. Like if you were comparing us to like Blackstone or Starwood, their fees are like 10, you know, five, 10 times higher. Is that your typical competitor on a deal like Blackstone or one of the bigger, bigger uh, institutions? Yeah. On the buy side, when we're buying apartment buildings, it, like we saw Carlisle a lot. Um, yeah. Those types of institutions were not so much Blackstone. Blackstone buys platforms. But the so other private equity funds. For those in our audience who aren't really familiar with the traditional real estate private equity business model, like Blackstone or some of the people you used to work for, can you just explain sort of how they make money, what their objective is, um, just in a general sense, um, how how this sort of market of raising money for private investors to buy large-scale real estate works? Yeah. Well, I love that question. So um, there's actually, I put a lot of thought into that because you sort of, to understand how to disrupt an industry and understand how it works. So there's a really like value chain in, 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 in the industry. So you start with large pools of money, typically pension funds. 
So they may, maybe like California state teachers, they run 20 billion, sorry, $200 billion. They have all these advisors, all this bureaucracy. They basically allocate money to pri- private equity funds or private equity funds raises money from these big pools. And then private equity funds turn around and invest it with real estate companies in local markets. So there might be like a local developer in Seattle who knows all about office or, or apartments in Seattle. And and that private equity fund will back them in a sort of what a 90-10 deal, 90% from the private equity fund, 10% from the local sponsor. And so it's really like the whole industry is made up of sort of three major players, the the funds that allocate the money, the real estate operator who who runs the deal, and then the actual like large pools of capital, like the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Wealth Fund, for example, trillion dollars. Like they had to put that money to work. So it's actually really a lot of it's about getting those flows into real estate. And what are the, you know, what what are the sort of benefits that either an individual investor like myself or James or someone as large as the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, why would they choose to allocate funds into real estate private equity when they have, you know, every option in the world for where to invest their capital? Yeah. Well, I mean, okay, so these large institutions will allocate their money everywhere. <laughs> so they they typically diversify across like, you know, every single asset class. And so real estate typically gets about 10% of all their assets. And it's so it's really about um, diversification. So it, it, th- that's how these big institutions think first. They first, first diversification. And then once they get to diversification, they go inside of like a subsector like real estate or maybe it's venture capital, right? And say, okay, I'm going to allocate X percentage to this sort of asset class. And inside that asset class, I'm going to find experts who are best at investing in real estate or you know, infrastructure or like uh, green power, whatever the asset might be. And so it, it's like a very special problem having to invest like $100 billion. It's like hard for most people to imagine how do you, how is that a problem, right? But <laughs> it doesn't sound like a problem. <laughs> but when you get into it, like, uh, like you know, they they want to, you know, typically private equity is achieving like pretty good returns. It's beating. It's usually beating the stock market for the last like 30, 40 years, and so um, that's why they invest in it, right? Because there's been historically better outcomes than than public stocks. So on bigger pockets, there's a lot of like active and passive approaches to how people want to invest in real estate, and you know. Uh, Obviously, a, a bigger pocket. There's a lot of new investors, or you know, people like me that that we're we're trying to grow our portfolios, and, and we're very active. But it requires a ton of work on our side. You know, I know I was at my office till midnight the last three nights, uh, just just getting my hands dirty, getting things done. My kind of guy. Yeah, it's. Uh, <laughs> I will put in the hours, but you know, it does have some wear, right? And a lot of investors are more passive, where they don't want to stay at the office till midnight, worrying about their construction budget or crunching numbers and, and getting that next deal done. Is it, is your typical client mix more of a passive, larger fund, or uh, you know, like a like these bigger institution, or do you have a lot of smaller investors too that? Just are, you know, like for me, like after a certain amount of years, I will be sick of keeping my hands on everything and I just want to put the money out, right? But we're just trying to build that huge lump. No, sum. you won't, James. You're addicted. <laughs> probably, you know, probably you're not. Addicted. 
I am a true deal <laughs> but you keep telling yourself that that's the theory right <laughs> the whole financial freedom I'm chasing um is there is there people like who who's your typical client that goes is it larger funds or is it smaller investors also looking for that passive income yeah so we have 350,000 active investors so we have like a like, huge number of people and so that basically it's hard to describe any like one persona. There's like all different kinds of people. There's like a lot of software engineers who want to invest in real estate. There are um, a lot of a lot of financial professionals. Like I go in to meet investment banks. I was meeting with some investment bank um, like before COVID. I was sitting in the room and there's like, you know, there it was the it was an um, their investment banking group and had the real estate group and it had their tech group. And the older, like, 60-year-old managing partner was trying to ask me about Fundrise. And I was like, well, who who in this room of, like, are, like, investors in Fundrise? Everybody under the age of 40 raised their hand. So like, half the room was actually my investor. So so it's, like, um, a, a lot of different kinds of people. But I find the thing about real estate, there are new real estate investors who are interested in learning. They want to get their feet wet. Maybe they want to like take a, a, a small amount of capital risk, so maybe they only invest a thousand, or you know, they're not want they don't want to go put fifty thousand dollars into one deal. But you know who loves to invest in real estate? Real estate people. So I have all these big real estate people who also like to say, "Well, I have my real estate where I'm active, but I have also other real estate I invest in. Sometimes I invest in Fundrise. Sometimes I help other kind of other people in the industry that are are rising stars." So it's it's so diverse, and uh, that's it's one of the interesting challenges because we have this range of people who want like tons of information and are really sophisticated, and people who, you know, don't know what a cap rate is. That's a really good point. We talk about on the show a lot about diversification. I think a lot of people assume that means diversification between different asset classes like the stock market, bonds, but I, I at least I think James is a living example of diversification between real estate assets, right? You know, like being able to buy single families and short-term rentals. And so it sounds like a good portion of the people who are investing in these passive deals um, might also have an active portfolio and are just trying to balance how they're spending, not just their capital, but their time, right? There's probably, you know, people don't have unlimited time to go acquire deals at the rate James does. Yeah, it's actually the easiest people for me to talk to is a real estate person. And they get comfortable with investing in things they know. So a real estate person can underwrite real estate. Like, oh, I get this. But if I were to bring you like machine learning, right? If you want to invest in machine learning, like, you say, I don't know. I don't have no idea how to make that decision. So a lot of times people invest in things they understand. And so a real estate person would start with us and say, oh, wait, actually, you guys really have like a deep sophistication here. Like I'm interested. And they, and they might want to invest in like a geography they're not active in. Right. Or, or, um, yeah, product type, as you said, like they're an office guy and they want to go invest in residential. What, one of the things I, I invest passively, I mean, primarily at this point. And one of the things I, I like most about it is being able to get into geographies that I'm not in currently. What, what markets are you heavily invested in? Like, are, are you geographically, are you, uh, Flood in the Sun Belt, just like uh, a lot of people are on, on this show, or, or everybody we're... else. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you don't have to give away your trade secrets, but uh, are there any geographies you're particularly interested in? 
Yeah, it's funny. So we've Fundrise has been around since, as I said, after the financial crisis, and we were all in on urban infill in like 2012 and 13, 14. Anybody who was in real estate knows that like the, the emerging neighborhood was where everybody was investing. And then 2016, we pivoted and started really investing in the Sun Belt and selling all the stuff in like Brooklyn and 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 DC. And so we went like heavy Sun Belt, like our. 20,000 residential units are all sunbelt. And, um, and so now it's, uh, it's, it's still, I still think sunbelt's where it's at. It's just, I think it's all about build for rent rather than multifamily. I mean, I think both are good, but I, I'm, uh, yeah, I, I still think sunbelt's got the runway. I still think, um, that like, uh, an Austin or a Nashville will just keep, keep on building. The only place I'm interested in now is new, is I really and and really think Columbus is interesting. I think Columbus could be. I mean, I not interested in go to. <laughs> no, sorry, not. I work with somebody from <laughs> work with somebody from Columbus. I always like the tool on Columbus, but uh, yeah, I think Columbus has got like huge amount of of growth coming. That's like really going to be interesting because of the Intel um, chip plant they're going to build there. Oh, okay. I've been to Columbus once. It was pretty fun. I had a good time. Hey Ben, how often do you uh, how often do you guys analyze that strategy and like look at pivoting? Like, because I mean, at some point you made a pivot in 2016. Do you guys audit that once a year for your strategy, and then, or like how how far down the road are you forecasting when you're when you're looking at making that? Uh, that's a big change, right? Going from what uh, that's a totally different type of market, emerging cities to Sun Belt. Like, how often do you guys do that and forecast? Yeah, I mean, so I mean. Back then we did it because we we you know we were investing across the country, but mostly in the urban infill, and we we were learning from doing deals. One of the things you do is you if you invest a, in a deal, let's say in a new market, you learn a lot, and if you if it's going well, then you can actually double down. And so we were investing in a few emerging markets, like which at the time, like I remember actually I had a, a, a person used to work for me, and they were like, "You got to sell everything in Florida." Because the next recession, like Florida is going to get killed and New York's going to basically do great. Because that's what happened to every other financial, every other financial crisis going like 08, 2001, you know, the, the, the sort of sunbelt got killed. And this was like totally upside down from how it normally happens. So I'll give you like an intuitive answer and an analytical answer. Analytically, we have, you know, we have 100 software engineers so we've been building software into our system. So we actually start getting real-time data from all of our properties and also, you know, I don't know, like a, a 14 million other properties, some huge number. So we can really see what's happening on the ground and have a good sense of like why, where growth is and, and essentially where, where rent growth is and occupancy delinquency. So that's a huge part of it. And the other part of it is kind of what I'd call it's top-down it's really easy to see that like when something's getting really expensive, like if you're in New York and there was a two and a half cap back in 2017 and people assumed rent growth had to go to like $8 a square foot, you're like, they just, they just don't believe that. Right. So at some point the Sunbelt will get too expensive relative to the, you know, gateway cities to New York and LA. And that's when it's over. Like that's when it's like topped. And so it's it's really a question of like you do bottom up analysis like in the weeds and you do top down analysis looking at the big picture. You have to do both. 
how do you how do you make decisions about that? Do you have like an investment committee, or I uh, I guess I'd say I hope you're not just making algorithmic decisions like Zillow was doing and failing out for a while. Yeah, yeah, right, right. So you know, Fundrise is 325 people, and so we have like a, a lot of real estate people, and we're in a lot of you know a lot of markets. So it's 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 driven by the people first. The software just makes it easier to to see the information. But the idea that software is going to replace people and investment decisions, I think that's a big mistake. That's not where our software will make improvements. Our software can make improvements on the operations. It's really the operations where the software can improve the basically like all the work that's done after you buy it. But whether or not you buy it is a is a human decision. So you use the software to re, you know increase the return, but not analyze the return. Yeah, and manage it. There's like um, we have like I mean we actually intend to roll the software out to third parties probably like in about a year because there's actually nothing really like it out there. But we you know we built it for ourselves, and we know it's good. We know it works, and so we'll we'll make it available to more people. But it's like uh, it's going to take time. We just don't have the bandwidth. You said something earlier, Ben, about build to rent and liking it better than multifamily. We just did a show with um, the National. God, I'm going to butcher this. It was a multifamily housing council, um, and they were talking about just huge demand for multifamily units, um, and that I think bodes well for the future of multifamily. Um, but I'm curious if, if you have a different take, like what, why, what do you like about build for rent, uh, as a asset class going into the future? So we got into that build for rent around 2019. We've been trying to get into single family housing since 2017. We couldn't find a way to do it at scale where it was efficient. And the reason we went into it was we saw our office is made up of mostly millennials and the millennials are turning 30, having kids, leaving cities, they need more space, and, and a house. They wanted a house. And the second thing that happened that we didn't expect was work from home. And work from home, I think, is like a biggest social revolution happening. Like, it's like if you go back 100 years, people used to work on farms, right? They moved to cities to work in factories and office buildings. Like now they're leaving cities and they're leaving office buildings. It's like that big a social change. And so work from home, I think, is like going to drive residential value. It's going to take a trillion dollars out of office put it, and put it into residential value. And so if you're going to work from home and you have kids, are you going to do it from a one-bedroom apartment downtown or are you going to do it from a house? So I, I think it's, it's a, the house is a better consumer product. It has a backyard, it has light. It's actually cheaper per square foot. And, and you're willing to basically commute because you don't have to commute as often anymore because you're working from home. So, so basically, like, like, it's like an iPhone is a better product than a BlackBerry, right? Like the, the home is a better product than the apartment. And so we said we want to invest in that, but we didn't want to go buy single-family homes because basically that would put us in competition with, with our, our customer. You know, our customer wants to buy a home and they don't want to compete with a billion-dollar institution to buy it. So we said, okay, well, we can't compete with our customer. Well, let's build it. And if we build it from scratch, we can build it 
designed to be this new thing. So it's like a it's like an apartment building laid down on its side. It's got amenities like a swimming pool and a clubhouse and all the things you would have in like a really cool apartment building, but instead in a you know hundred unit community where you have a, you know dog park, you know running trails, all these all these cool neighborhood features, and we run everything right. You don't have to deal with lawn care, you don't have to deal with maintenance. So it's like a really cool product, and I think it's. I think it's just going to become a big part of the industry. Did the bill for rent have anything to do with um, like uh, implementing the plan to and efficiencies? Because, you know, like we build 50 homes a year in Seattle. We renovate about 100 homes a year. And I can say renovating is substantially less systematic than building. Like building, you can you go through the plans permit, you're hiring professionals, it's managed all the way through, and you can actually control it a little better. Whereas remodel, every every house is so different. Does it have anything to do with that and keeping your deferred maintenance down? Because I know like on our new build apartment buildings or, or rentals, we have way less deferred maintenance and way less issues because the remodel, there's always those trades that do things a little bit different, a little bit wrong, and then you have to come back and fix those things. Does that have any impact in making that decision, remodel versus, or was it all about who your consumer was and what they were trying to do? Yeah, yeah, totally. So, you know, more than most people about this. So we we started out in the remodel. We bought about 50 homes in like um, LA and it was a nightmare. Like this, so it was just hard, very, every home was different. The permitting was a, just horrible. Like we constantly had squatters breaking in. It was, it was just like, it just didn't scale. It's just, it, we couldn't pull it off. And we were like, okay, well, we, we still think this is a huge macro trend. And so we we're, we went to home builders. We also also bought land, and and said, oh, this is zoned for you know four hundred suburban apartments. Let's build two hundred single family homes instead. And so we went to a home builder and said, hey, we want to build two hundred single family homes here. And they're like, oh, interesting. You want to buy homes? Like we build a lot of homes, and we found that the home builders can build homes for way cheaper because they build you know ten thousand homes a year. So they can build homes way cheaper than even, you know, like, like if I sat down with a development company and did it, like we might build for $200 a square foot and they'll build for 150 a square foot. So, so we partnered with home builders and, um, and those home builders basically build us. We've built, you know, like you know 5,000 homes so far and we really built a lot and we're, we intend to build more. And so it's it's the home builder at scale can deliver basically a bespoke product, you know, with like that's designed right for long term ownership rather than like as you said the renovations, which are mostly like make the renovation and like sell the house before the deferred maintenance comes home to roost. That you know these these types of the type of development you're describing sort of reminds me of some of these planned communities that honestly I'm more used to seeing like older people retirees kind of live in what what's the are you appealing to like the work from home demographic and and younger families like you were talking about the the impetus for this being millennials buying homes like is that who you're building the the product for well that's what we thought we were building it for it turns out it's like every everybody okay it's so diverse like here i'll give you like one here's one interesting stat a typical apartment building 25 to 30 percent of people have a dog and in built for rent, 70% of people have a dog. Whoa. Right? Because you have a backyard, right? Yeah. So guess what? People who want who have dogs want to live in a house rather than an apartment. 
So there's all sorts of drivers for why you want to live in like a back home with a backyard and and more light. And so, um, you know, when we when we compete on like um, you know apartments.com for renters, like you're selling basically a different experience. And I think for a lot of people, they didn't even really know that was available. The idea of renting a home that's not from some kind of random mom and pop who's like not going to have like that good of a property management capability. So it's it's a it's a new asset class. Like I real estate, if you go back like twenty years or or longer, as long as like I've seen, right? Real estate actually births new asset classes every decade. So like twenty years ago, there were zero data centers, right? Now data centers are a huge part of the re- business. Twenty years ago. Right, there was cold cold storage wasn't a thing, self storage wasn't a thing, cell tower REITs weren't a thing, like single family rental, like as a as an asset class, got birthed by Blackstone in, with invitation homes. So these new trends show up, and the old trends like retail and office die. So it's key part of real estate is being part of the new trends. That's very interesting, James. I'm curious, would you ever? Build for rent at your scale, or does this only work like at scale, like Ben is talking about? Uh, I think it it works more for large short plats because the larger the plat, the cheaper it gets. It's kind of like when you build a home. If you build a four thousand square foot home versus a two thousand square foot home, your price per square foot is going to be a lot cheaper on the large because your core areas are still the same. But when you have these big plats, they can really cut the cost down. So we build infill. We built, you know, our largest sites, probably 12 units, 12 townhomes. We do all townhomes, mostly four to 12 unit sites because that's what you get in infill. Our build cost around Seattle is about 275 a foot from development to, to finish. And it's getting you a higher end product, too. But if we look at our track home, like my clients that are track homes that are buying more like 100 plat sites, they're building in the low 200s. And so it makes that it makes a huge difference in your bottom line when you can get scalability. Plus you get the efficiencies out of the renting, the property management, the maintenance, everything's in one central location. And so, yeah, the larger, the larger, the plat, the cheaper it's going to be. And the other good thing about the building to bit rent on these large plats is the typical time lane for purchasing these is a close on permit. When you're negotiating a lot of these deals, you get a close with the permits and it could be a year or two down the road, but you can get building day one. Whereas in infill on the smaller stuff, it's, it's such a hot market that sometimes you have to close. We have to close half the time that we would need for the permits. And so you can systemize out the bigger plats just substantially better. But the downside is you got to have fundrise money. You can't go buy it with, you know, like, I'm not gonna go buy a hun- I'm not gonna go buy a hundred unit plat because that's gonna be I'm gonna be putting everything into one pot and so it, yeah the bigger the the bigger the money the bigger the scale yeah that's exactly what we found because we we have a mentality we hate to outsource anything we always do try to do things ourselves and we started out trying to build these things with our with our, our own capabilities and the home builders just crushing our our execution right so they're they're building $150 a square foot. Like we couldn't build for less than 200 a square foot and they're building for 150. We're, I mean, we're, we're literally buying homes right now in Austin, like above Pflugerville for 130 a square foot. Like they, they just have such scale and they, you know, they buy, you know, they buy like, you know, 10,000 countertops, right? They just, they just have such control over their supply chain. It's now that I understand that business 
it's really a factory. It looks like a real estate company, but it's actually a factory. And everything is about how something moves through the factory floor. You know, like the plumber is coming exactly on time. Like if you ever do, if you've done renovations at home, where, you know, in a one, one project, like there'll be this massive downtime between when the electric, electrician was supposed to come and when the guy is supposed to close it up with drywall and they won't come, it'll be delayed. You can't actually close up the wall because the electrician hasn't shown up. And so it's all about coordinating the trades. And you can do that with a home builder in a way that you just can't do that as like a, even a hundred, hundred homes. It's not like scale. Yeah. It's kind of like the, the whole premise of like the Toyota manufacturing plan where they they mm-hmm. build the cars that are constantly moving. You just get so much or Boeing, same thing, right? Where you get so much more in a fit. You get so, cause your labor guys go, here's my house. I got to walk next door. Here's my next house. Whereas with remodels, you got to drive an hour down the road and, and you don't know exactly when it's happening. Right. Right. So like a lot of times people ask me about like, you know, cap rates and stuff. And we buy, we buy on basis. Like if we can get a CFO for $150 a square foot in Tampa, like I'm feeling pretty good about that. And, and exactly, you know, exactly what cap rate it'll end up like leasing up to is cap rates come and go. I mean, like when I started the industry, like my, you'd be like, okay, shouldn't we build to a 12? And I was like, what a 12? Like now you are building to a five, maybe four, maybe a six, but like, so cap rates will come and go, but your basis is forever. So it seems like, I mean, just for people listening to this, there's not really, it sounds like there's not really a good way for like a retail investor to go out and get into this asset class of buy to rent. Um, with the exception of Fundrise, I guess, uh, they could get in it. Or are there other ways that people can like hop on the build to rent bandwagon? I mean, it's really new. It's a new space. I mean, like seriously, there are probably 50,000 units across the country. I think there's like 50 million apartments. I mean, this is really new. Like when I, I mean, I'm talking to institutions cause they want to do it too. They can come in and like co-invest with our, our, our customer. Like I, I love the idea of like a multi-billion dollar institution investing next, next to a $10 investor like that. That doesn't happen in, in normal life, but the platform we built basically is a platform that they want. And what kind of investor for the smaller investors, um, they they have to be accredited to invest in your no 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 okay anybody can invest yeah no oh, cool so any how does that work because like normally on a syndication you have to be accredited there's like a minimum of like I don't know usually fifty or a hundred grand how do you get around that by going through it so we our our vehicles are publicly registered. So we actually go to the SEC, say we're going to have a a strategy to invest in build for rent, and we're going to basically like allow the public to invest in it. They work us over <laughs> like to no end, and then we get it cleared. And so that that's why anybody can invest in it. Oh, so basically the reason the reason you have to be accredited for a syndication normally is correct me if I'm wrong, Brad, is because they're unregistered securities, right? Like it right. is not vetted by any government entity like stocks, for example, which are regulated by the SEC. And so you're saying you register your investments with, is it the SEC or is it a different? Yes, the SEC. Yeah. Is the SEC, wow. Are you the only people who do that? Um, 
I mean, it's. You don't I, have to tell me your trade trade secrets. <laughs> no, I'm just. I mean, I don't want to say categorically there aren't people who are doing it, but I mean, yeah, we're the idea of going direct to consumer, registering the funds. I mean, like again, that's a scale thing, right? Like you're not going to do it for a 50 person syndication, but if with 350,000 investors, right? It's worth you know the cost to do it is, I mean, it's significant, right? I mean, we have like, I mean, we have I've, we have 50 accountants in house, right? Like it's mm-hmm. a lot of like with five in-house attorneys, like there's a lot of grind on it, but across a lot of enough people, it the marginal cost is like almost nothing. Yeah, because they, they look under your hood a lot more at that point, right? The SEC. I mean, oh, it, it, yeah. the, the big difference is... It, it, You're feeling violated, Ben. <laughs> yeah. but, the, but, that's, but that's why so many people set up these syndications with unregistered securities because it's a... It, I mean, to Ben's credit, that's a lot of work. And 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 it, it's not worth the headache if you're doing a 50-unit apartment building because it's the cost and the audits and um, the qualifying is, is is pretty good. But that, that means that your investor can feel pretty good about putting money with you, though, because it is being – I mean, it's getting an extra pair of eyes and audit compared to a lot of other syndicating platforms. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a – I mean, we've been doing it for a while, and our CFO, my, my CFO, was chief accountant at the SEC – so like we have like expertise, we kind of know after a while, like you kind of know what you're doing. It's, and just like anything, like I'm sure with real estate, when you first started, you, you talked about doing an 80 unit apartment building before we started this show. Like when you started, you were like, how would I do that? Right. I wouldn't know how to do that. But once you know how to do it, right. It's not that complicated. It's just, it's just knowledge. And so, you know, working with regulators, like understanding what they care about, giving them what they need. It's once you understand it, right? It's not it's not rocket science. I can't imagine what the SEC would do if they looked at my personal real estate investing <laughs> and the way I've kept my books over the last twelve years. They'd I'd probably be in jail. <laughs> not that I'm doing anything illegal. I'm just a little disorganized. Okay, <laughs> we have to edit this part out. <laughs> hey Ben, have you guys had any problems with inflation and supply chain issues in this build to build the rent? It, because you know, obviously, that's been tough for us as builders controlling our cost. Actually, randomly, it's been easier for us to control our cost more as a builder than a remodeler. Mm-hmm. The remodeler has been tougher because I think the labor markets less experienced and so they charge more but mm-hmm. what, what's inflation been doing to that your returns if the bill cost goes up or how, like how do you mitigate that or how do you deal with inflation yeah there's a lot of complexity in what you're asking so let me just pick a few things because yeah he had a huge effect on everything i mean everything was going crazy last year especially so we you know we so i'll just give you like so the reason we broke through with build for rent is we went to these home builders in 2019 and and we were talking to them, and they were like maybe interested, but mostly they weren't interested. And then March 2020 happened. You remember March 2020 when the stock market collapsed 40 percent, and people were locked down. Guess what? People were not doing in March 2020, buying homes. Except for me, <laughs> yeah. Most people were not. So the home builders had all these homes, and all of a sudden the industry just stopped on a dime. And they turned around to us and said, "Do you want to buy these homes?" We said yes, and so we went. We went under contract for half a billion dollars of homes that summer. That was a good month. Yes, because then they had to deliver them. You know, they we we go under contract and they deliver. You know, home builders we go under contract and they deliver them over the next. Took them like eighteen months to deliver all those homes, and so yeah, our contract price was like scorchy, and they would come back and they would be like, "I know, (laughs) I know, we're under contract, but like." 
every single cost is going up. Like, can we talk about this? And so, so we had a lot of complexity there. And then they deliver, you know, we're talking about delivering like hundred homes a week. We were buying a lot of homes uh, and they deliver them like without refrigerators, like without a kitchen. We'd go in for the inspection and be like missing a kitchen. Like they, they, they would, um, they would just not be able to get like certain, certain things. Like in Texas, we couldn't get door hinges. Like just, they would deliver the home and be like, we have no, we have, we, we put these hinges on, but you knew the hinges, like the hinges opened out. And so you can't have hinges open out because then somebody can walk up and just unscrew the hinges and take the door off the house. So like they, there was just all these little things that they had these problems around. We had, we had a person driving around buying refrigerators at Costco so we could actually like rent the houses because we had these houses without refrigerators. So yeah, there was all sorts of chaos happening. Talk about when they say uh, timing is everything. That's the best time. You, so you bought it cheap and then so the bill costs were locked in too. Uh, when you when you committed to that, yeah, there. Oh, that hurt. That hurts. Yeah, yeah. There there was one deal we were under contract with, and the builder had a five million dollar liquidation. Like they had to like to break the contract with us. They had to pay us five million dollars, and they literally just like broke the contract. Whoa. Yeah, we're the, we're just breaking this contract. It was that bad. Oh my god. It was that bad. It was in Austin, and they're like the price of the homes had inflated so much. They're just like we're just walking away from this contract. It's forget about it. <laughs> Wow, that's insane. Are you starting to see that level off now? Or are things getting better in terms of supply? Oh, chain? yeah. Well, supply chain is still a little messed up, but the home building industry is now flipped again and like sales are falling. And I'm like, oh, I've seen this movie before. <laughs> <laughs> like, hmm. <laughs> so, um, but this time, like last time, there was nobody doing this. Now there's like more, there's more money now, like chasing bill, bill for rent. So we're not the only sort of buyer in the in the space, but yeah, the home the home, the you know as you would know the market's shifting like a lot right now. There's a lot changing. Where do you? I know you don't have a crystal ball, but like where where do you see things going over the next year or so? Yeah, I mean, in some ways the next year is easier than the like the following. Like we we've been saying since January that interest rates are going to be higher for longer. And like Powell last week, you know, at the Jackson Hole meeting said like, you know, 4% Fed funds rate for all of 2023. So that means basically you're borrowing at 6% or more where you used to borrow it, you know, at 3%, or at least that's what we were borrowing. So, um, so I think the industry is going to grind to a halt. Like I think most things don't pencil at more than 4% interest rates. I mean, base interest rates, like the Fed funds rate. So, um, and I think that like the surprise is going to be, my, our expectations the surprise are going to be that inflation doesn't come down as much as people expect. Interest rates stay higher for longer. And it's like, almost like people are like, well, how can that happen? That's so bad. And it's like, because it doesn't care how you feel about it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. But that's the truth. <laughs> well, and it's also history repeats itself. That happened in the 70s, right? Like it just kind of stuck. And then it had to get it worked through the economy and, and on to the next thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know what you're seeing, but like, you know, we have 300 people like wages. It's super competitive for labor, oh. you know, like food, everything. I'm like, I'm not seeing inflation come down like in any meaningful way. So like, why do I think it's going to all of a sudden, I mean, 
just shift. It's, it just doesn't seem likely to me. So like the real, like the thing we did, we, we stopped, we really slowed down investing back in January and we started building up cash. So we have like $700 million of dry powder right now. So we really were like, we were ready and we're kind of fairly ready for the shift. And then the shift's going to be, you need to go into investing credit. That's the credit markets. That's another learning because I've been in this for a while. In a financial crisis, all the action happens in the liquid credit markets. Like in 2020 or 2008, right? You couldn't really buy properties, but you could buy the paper. And so the paper is where like the, the pricing shifts a lot faster and you can get way more distress. Uh, but that's like... Um, a whole different part of the real estate industry that most like people don't see CMBS, RMBS, asset backed securities, that kind of stuff. Oh yeah. Cause they'll dump that paper cheap. Uh, I remember the, one of the best deals I ever did in 2009, I didn't even know how good of a deal it was when we did it. Someone came to us, they, they had a, a tenure in foreclosure and it was like a private lender. And they're like, Hey, we want out of this. They sold it to us for 50 cents on the dollar. Mm-hmm. And then we, th- we were running it like, Oh, okay, cool. We're going to be able to buy this. We'll foreclose it. No one wants it. it. Ended up getting bid up. We bought it a week before the auction. We bought the paper. We took it down to the auction steps. We foreclosed it. Mm-hmm. And then it got bid up. They were step bidding against us. Cause we wanted to keep the building. We had no intentions of selling it. And we made like a 300% return on our investment in 10 days <laughs> because it's someone good. really wanted it. And I was like, and we had no intentions of selling it, but we're like, that was the easiest that we didn't have to touch it. We didn't have to do anything. The guy gave it away. We got it escrowed and we, for, it was just, it was just a win all the way around. It's amazing what that can do. Yeah. So like we're all in like the real estate business, but there's like this shadow real estate industry that you don't know about where all of the things you do where you borrow money, but you buy an apartment building, you buy a house, like eventually like most of that assets actually financed. And then there's this whole parallel real estate world of like credit markets where people are buying, you know, your paper and levering it up too. Right. So like, like, so there's actually like you're, when you buy a house, you're buying apartment building, you're borrowing maybe 75% and somebody behind the scenes has bought that paper and levered it up 10 times as well. And somebody bought their paper, levered it up 10 times more. And so like the shadow industry of like, you know, trillions of real estate, of real estate, just the debt is like, um, it's, it's become much more attractive than the equity. That's super interesting. Um, yeah, I actually was just looking, uh, I mean, last week at investing into a note fund, it seems like a really good place to be investing right now. Um, Ben, I know we only have you for a couple more minutes. Um, so maybe, uh, we'll have to bring you back to talk about note investing and pay and, uh, the credit markets. That would be super interesting. But, um, before we go, can you just tell our audience about where, you know, obviously they can find you on fundrise.com, but, um, if anyone wants to connect with you, what's the best place that they can do that? Well, I am active on Twitter. So I'm, uh, my Twitter handle is Ben Miller eyes, like, like rise, Ben Miller eyes dot, um, and so, you can hit me up there, um, LinkedIn, you know, contact at fundrise.com. Like anytime anybody emails me at the, at, you know, the main email address, I always get it. So I'm always interested in hearing people. I might, you learn a lot. Our actual investor base constantly communicating with us. And we, we're always learning about really interesting things. We have, we basically have people everywhere at this point, And they're really like generous with sharing information. So I love to hear from people. 
Awesome. Great. Well, Ben, thank you so much for being here. This was a lot of fun uh, and learned a lot. And uh, we'll have to have you back on the show sometime soon. Great. Excellent. It's good being you, Ben. a lot of fun james what did you what did you think about the conversation with ben uh it, it made me realize how small i am as an investor still you know it's uh, I, oh dude don't, don't even start <laughs> <laughs> but you know what i don't get to talk to these big institutional guys that often and I, I the only time i really get to talk to them is when i get notified their offers way higher than mine and so it was it was nice to kind of talk to them and and, and figure out but it's 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 very interesting like how they are moving things around, looking at things, and it has the same same core principles as us. Like be efficient, uh, buy the right deal. Uh, don't let don't let your uh, procedures kind of maximize yourself out. So I mean, uh, the core principles were the same. I think the money is different. Is is, is what I, I realized, dude. Now, you talking to Fundrise and feeling small is how I feel every time I talk to you. So now <laughs> you know what it actually feels like. <laughs> Yeah, man, I, I thought it was super interesting. Like, I, I'm really kind of just fascinated, like from an economic standpoint, about build to rent. Like, like he was saying, it's like this whole new asset class that just never existed before. Like, previously, you either built multifamily to rent, or you would like reuse single family homes that were previously owner occupied into built to rent, and so. It's a really interesting phenomenon and you read a lot about it, but to his point, he said there's only like 50,000 units. So it's really not like taking over the market, but that's something I'm definitely going to be watching for the next couple of years to see if that yeah. makes an impact on on the, the markets they're doing it in. I think if we go into like a little stall too and dirt gets a lot cheaper, the reason they're not doing build to rent is dirt's expensive and build's expensive, but both those are coming down right now. So maybe they hits a sweet spot and they start doing more and more of it. Yeah, that'll be interesting. Um, for everyone listening, before we before we record, you know, usually the guests and and us just you know talk for a couple minutes to get to know each other. And James was telling Ben and I about this eighty-one unit deal he just did, and Ben was like completely amazed at what a good deal you got. Can you just tell us quickly about this deal and how you landed it? Because I'm very curious. Yeah, it was just a, so we've been looking, we, we do small syndications or, you know, 30 to 40 units in Seattle. And then we've been trying to get in the 50 to 100 because like what he was talking about, the efficiencies of remodeling, property management, it really does make a big difference in your bottom line. And recently what we've noticed is those big, those deals are now, they were trading at like a three cap, three and a half cap because because of guys like Fundrise coming in and buying them all. And, and that has slowed down. And so actually it was a seller that we gave an offer to at $11.8 million um, about six months ago. And he turned it down, turned it down, turned it down. He went to market, found his new exchange, uh, got tied up twice at 11.8. Or no, he, all, he went all the way up to $12 million at the time. Financing blew up both times. And we just kept... We kept well, actually our eleven point eight number dropped to ten point eight during because the rates and the the cost of the deal and and so we just stayed consistent with him the whole time for six months and we kept updating our offer to saying hey based on rate here's our new number and we always had that logic of our number has changed only because of the rate with this guy because he's a bigger seller and and we ended up locking it in though 81 units um it's it's about 10.9 million um we have to put about 25 grand 30 grand into each unit we're gonna be doing a soft cosmetic with windows hitting siding hitting roofs 
but nothing too too crazy. Mechanicals are good, and yeah, we're excited because we we have some more opportunity now. But uh, you know that's the key right now is just stay with your numbers. And then if you have to change your numbers, just educate the people why you're changing them so they don't think that you're just trying to take one over on them. And and, and it all came together. But I, I was I was happy to see that it looked like I blew the return socks off him. Yeah, yours. Ben Ben asked James what cap rate he sold at and, or bought at. Uh, he said 5.8, which is just like kind of unheard of, especially in Seattle, right? You said like a couple years ago it was 3, 3.3 or something like that. It was like, yeah, they're down in the low threes. Now, granted, the 5.8 is after stabilization. Okay. So after we've done the hard work, we'll be at a 5.8 to 6 right in there. So it wasn't on existing. So that's where you're under underwriting it at. Yeah. Yeah, stabilized were 5.8. But still, pretty damn good. You know what? And that's, I, I think we could do better. <laughs> you're, you're insatiable. You just you got to do better. <laughs> got to do better. All right, great. Well, great job today, James. As always, always asking good questions and telling really very relevant and funny stories about your own experience. So thanks for joining us. Everyone out there, thanks for listening. And we'll see you guys next time for On The Market. On The Market is created by me, Dave Meyer, and Kaylin Bennett. Produced by Kaylin Bennett. Editing by Joel Esparza and Onyx Media. Copywriting by Nate Weintraub. And a very special thanks to the entire Bigger Pockets team. Content on the show on the market are opinions only. All listeners should independently verify data points, opinions, and investment strategies. The housing market is changing, and finding your way right now can be a bit tricky. There are rate shifts, there are confusing headlines, but at the end of the day, your goal hasn't changed. You probably still want financial freedom as much as ever. Well, the good thing is that experienced investors know it's not about trying to time the market. It's about the amount of time you have in the market. And if you're ready to get into real estate investing game, you can still do that, or you can take your game to the next level by finding an investor-friendly agent. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in just a few minutes. You head over to biggerpockets.com slash deals, enter in some details about what you want, where you want to buy, and boom, you instantly get matched with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com slash deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com slash deals. That's biggerpockets.com slash deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investments in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.